Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome with us the band. Music from Big Pink hit the scene hard, and while the band had gotten comfortable with being the stars of Woodstock, they weren't prepared to be thrown into the limelight that music from Big Pink had brought. It wasn't the commercial success as much as it was the intrigue from fellow musicians. Some of their biggest fans also happened to be the biggest stars in the world. And while that may have affected the group slightly, the policy and the vision of what the band had set out to do hadn't changed. That started first and foremost with no touring. Levon remembers, the policy was to keep making music and using the methods and work habits that had kept us productive through the basement tapes in the Big Pink era. And that is primarily what they did. Not waiting for fame or fortune to catch up to them, they had soldiered on to create their follow-up album. The task is always difficult, especially after creating something so critically acclaimed. How do you top it? What the band had on their side was over eight years of experience in songs to go with that. It wasn't a totally fresh start, as the band had a good amount of material that didn't make it on the first album. However, they had new stuff that was also worth recording. This chapter, we will take a look as the band further defined their craft. We will also take a look at how the band became more ingrained with the rock world, superstars in their own right, but on their own terms. As music from Big Pink was nearing release, Robbie and Dominique decided to get married. They were married in the church on the mountain in Woodstock. The Archbishop, Father Francis Brothers, presided over the ceremony, mainly to impress Dominique's very Catholic family. Robbie's mother came from Toronto, and the wedding was small with just family and the regular gang. Levon served as best man, and Albert Grossman and his wife Sally held a reception at their home after the service. But everything was a little bit odd for Robbie. He felt awkward, probably the nerves of the wedding like anybody. And during the wedding, he wandered off with the band. Dylan and his wife Sarah were there to calm him. And he later stated in his memoir, Finally, that night, when it was just Dominique and me on our own, I tried to explain that something about the process knocked me off balance and made me feel unsure about myself. Was it because my strange upbringing, the way my parents broke up, my father's situation? That whole ceremony felt so conventional. That I'd been on the road since I was 16, and married life seemed like an oxymoron. And while all the insecurities spilled out, Dominique was there for reassurance and guidance. And around the time that Robbie hitched up with Dominique, Richard was in a terrible accident with a barbecue nonetheless. Carelessness was a word that you could use for Richard and a lot of the guys during this era. And he had accidentally made a bomb out of gasoline in a barbecue pit one night, severely burning his foot. That paired with a recent run-in with the police and having him yet total another car, Richard had his license revoked. But his brother was also getting married up in Stratford, Ontario, the hometown of him and his family. And without a vehicle and having an injury, he called Jane Christensen, his former girlfriend. Jane, who is a model from Toronto, whom Richard had dated since the Hawk days off and on, reluctantly offered to drive him. As she later stated in Levon's biography, Richard and I stayed in touch because he was my first love. So we went to the wedding. And to get me in the mood, Richard proposed. We got married the next weekend. He was always very pleased about this and he used to tease me about it and this total manipulation. And after their quick marriage, they both went back to Woodstock and lived with Garth, who had a house on Spencer Road. Following the wedding and other festivities, Albert Grossman had scheduled meetings at Capitol Records in Los Angeles, and Robbie tagged along. Staying at the Chateau Mormont, Robbie was introduced to Alan Pariser by a friend of the band, Barry Feinstein. 
Pariser, who was managing a new act named Delaney and Bonnie, hosted large parties in his house in the Hollywood Hills. This is where Robbie first met Eric Clapton and his bandmate from Cream, Ginger Baker. When I first met Eric in 1968, he told me the, the profound effect that music from Big Pink, the band's first album, had on him. And I thought, wow, what an honor it is to hear this. And then he told me, and he said, and in fact, I'm leaving Cream. The laid-back feel and the Roots vibe had made Clapton realize that Cream's bombastic loud playing had taken him off course. Now Clapton, who had never really been comfortable staying in one place musically, could have been an excuse for him to rid himself of Cream and go in another direction. Along with all the partying, Robbie also met with record execs at Capitol Records, and they were now eager about the band. They understood their sound and the market potential that they had, and they wanted the band to go out on road touring. Their record was also getting the attention of other musicians. Like mentioned, the band caught word that Aretha Franklin was set to do a cover of The Weight at Muscle Shoals with Dwayne Allman on guitar. With new plans to think about, Robbie headed back to Woodstock, and not long after returning from Los Angeles, Dominique was pregnant and they were looking for a new home. They eventually found one on the other side of town on Boggs Hill Road, and it was fully furnished. John Simon, who had produced their first album and was likely to come back for their second at this point, had also decided it was time to move up to Woodstock and rented a house next door. It was perfect as the proximity allowed them to work closely. And as everybody was hitching up and moving on with their lives and settling into larger houses, they had to let the lease on Big Pink go. It was a sad day as the place had meant so much to the band, but it wasn't needed any longer. And privacy had become an issue, with people from out of town coming in to check out the place, so much like today. And after Los Angeles, Clapton, who had been a fan of the band, was eager to come to Woodstock. And in the late summer, early fall of 1968, he did just that. John Simon agreed for Clapton and his girlfriend to come stay at his place. And when Clapton arrived, he was awestruck. Robbie toured him around town, showing him the places that they now called home. And it became apparent that Clapton really wanted to jam with the band. But that wasn't really their style. They were always in the mood to create and craft songs, not particularly jam out. And while Clapton took it in strides, it was later revealed that the real reason he had come to Woodstock was to ask to join the band. I wanted to be in the band. So I went and told Jack and Ginger that I couldn't go on anymore. Uh, there was something else happening that I had to bow out of because, you know, and I went, I went, Robbie and the boys will never know this, but I went to visit the band in Woodstock and I really sort of went there to ask if I could join the band. <laughs> Only I didn't have the guts to say it, you know. I didn't have the nerve. I just sort of sat there and watched these guys work. And, and one, I remember Robbie saying, we don't jam, you know, we don't jam. So there's no point sitting here and trying to, you know, we just write and work, and, it was, and I was very impressed, you know. And from that day, I spent the rest of my career, until the last waltz anyway, trying to find ways to imitate what they had. And not long after Clapton, George Harrison, one of the band's biggest fans from the other side of the pond, came to Woodstock as well. Now George was already well acquainted with Dylan, so he stayed with them for Thanksgiving. And the band, along with George and Bob, did some informal jamming session. Bob and George even wrote a few songs together and swapped others around. And according to Levon, there was talks about the band being part of a rock western called Zachariah that George's company Apple Films was promoting. George was also very interested in the band's recording methods and had multiple very specific questions about how each member recorded their parts and got the specific sound. 
and he admitted to the band that, you know, the Beatles were in sort of a limbo. John was entering into a phase of full indulgence to drugs. Ringo was pretty bad with the alcohol at the time, and Paul was more controlling than ever, dictating how everything and everybody was supposed to play and do. Robbie remembers on hearing George's struggles with the Beatles. Hearing George's inside story gave us even more confidence that our under-the-radar method might be wise. The band had been together for several years already, and we felt a little immune to the obvious pitfalls of the music business. The word of the band and music from Big Pink was getting around the West Coast, and people were very eager to hear the band play, and their offers were getting quite large. They began talking to Bill Graham, who wanted to book them to play a multi-night stand, and he could pay them some serious cash. But before any talks actually happened about doing dates, Rick Danko was in a serious accident. Around this time, Levon and Rick were living at a house in Wittenberg, and Rick was heading one night to Garth's house, driving his borrowed 1953 Bristol, an English car which was owned by Rick's girlfriend's older brother. As was tradition in those days, Rick was very drunk and very high and should have been driving, let alone doing it at the reckless speeds and taking sharp turns on mountain roads. And while taking one particular S-curve on the mountain road, the car slid and Rick ran into a tree. He later remembers the moments after the accident. I was knocked out, but had a lot of flashbacks until I regained my consciousness three or four days later. I remember getting out of the car and really bleeding when Bill Avis and his wife came along their way up to Richard and Garth's house. Now Rick screamed for Avis to take him back to his house that he shared with Levon, and Avis did just that and got him into his bed. And that's all Rick really remembers, until hours later when he was awoken in his room, surrounded by people on every side. There were the police and they were asking for his license. Now all this being in the middle of the night, all Rick saw and heard was an angry half-naked Levon yelling at everybody in the room to call an ambulance. Several hours later, Rick awoke in a hospital in severe pain. He remembers Richard being really angry. If I hear him scream one more time, I'm gonna break your neck. Rick also remembers in the recovery room, I was waking up in excruciating pain and I had to scream to wake up the nurse. They didn't know my neck was broken and didn't know my back was broken in four places. It finally took their manager, Albert Grossman, to settle everybody down. He had talked to a neurosurgeon to get Rick fixed up and it was also very important the press didn't know anything about this. Rick would have to go on to lay completely still for several weeks to heal. Feeling awful about the situation, he wanted the band to continue and play, but they refused to go on without him, regardless of how good the money was. And with everything in a lull, and Richard and Robbie getting married, Levon was just getting started in his relationship with Libby Titus. Levon had heard about Libby well before meeting her, as she was apparently one of the prettiest girls in Woodstock. Libby had grew up on Ohio Mountain Road, and her father had moved the family to the area to work on his brother-in-law's Batman comic strip. Libby was attending Bard College and waitressing at the Cafe Espresso on Tinker Street in Woodstock. While working there, she became friends with Mason Hoffenberg, a friend of the band who was also a writer who had written the novel Candy with Terry Southern. Having left Bard only after one year, she moved to New York City and got married quickly to Barry Titus, the rich grandson of Helena Rubinstein, a cosmetics entrepreneur. Libby and Barry had their son Ezra Titus, who was born in July of 1966. But by 68, Libby had left Barry, and her and her son were left in limbo. Hoffenberg came to visit in the summer of 68 and offered to take Libby to Woodstock to hang out with the band. She went and spent the afternoon hanging out with Robbie and his wife before Rick came to sniff out the new fetch in town. That evening, they all went to Cafe Expresso where they witnessed two people fighting in the streets. Libby remembers it well. One was Andy Yarrow, Peter Yarrow's younger brother, and the other was Levon. I see Levon and think, I've never seen anyone so good looking. 
and after spending the summer in Woodstock, Libby saw the band blow up, with their first record making them famous. But on one particular night, on a bet, Rick and Levon had raced over to Mason Hoffenberg's house to try to see who could sleep with Libby first. It ended with Rick crashing a car and Levon winning. And there lies the beginning of Libby and Levon. As Rick was recovering, the band was starting plans on their next move as soon as he was healed. Bill Graham, a massive promoter, had wanted to meet the band for some time to book them for shows. He offered to personally come to Woodstock to discuss the opportunities. The following week, Graham arrived and they met at Grossman's home. Robbie remembered the strong impression Graham made. You could tell he had the chops for dealing with musicians and truly loved what he did. He told me a short version of his story about escaping Nazi Germany and making it over to America to fulfill his dreams. He was fascinating, a vital character, all the more so when he got down to business. And not wanting to tell Graham that Rick was recovering, Robbie let Graham do his best pitch for why the band should play. And after all was said, they had agreed to play Graham's Winterland venue in San Francisco and his newest place, Fillmore East in New York City. Along with Bill Graham, the band had hired Jonathan Taplin to be their road manager. Taplin was a recent graduate from Princeton and a really bright kid who had been deeply affected by the recent release of music from Big Pink. Here's what Taplin had to say about joining up with the band to work with them on the road and on their next album. In the winter of 68, early 69, Albert called me, Albert Grossman, who was Bob Dylan's manager, and he said, the boys want to go, or the band wants to go out to California to make their second record. Would you, they want you to be their tour manager, road manager, and put it all together and get them set up out there. And they want to build a recording studio. They just want to do it in a house. The band had decided to make their second album in Los Angeles and hiring producer John Simon again to lead the process. It was the perfect time too. Escape the cold winters and the now busy lifestyle of Woodstock for the warm and sunny skies of California. Now in Los Angeles, Capitol gave the band a fleet of VW buses to travel around in. And as Levon remembers, one of the first things that he and Garth would do when they got into town was look around for local pawn shops. The goal was always to find old horns, music books, or anything else useful. It was also more lucrative for the band during this time. They could start affording bigger and better material things, but it didn't stop them from getting down and dirty and finding a good deal. Garth found the drums, told me about them, at a pawn shop down in Santa Monica. And boy, they sounded good on tape. Uh, microphones could really hear the, the difference between those wooden rimmed drums. You could hear more wood and more skin and more stick. And this kit would later go on to show up on the album. They decided it would be best to record in a similar fashion that they had done with the basement tapes. So in February of 69, they rented Sammy Davis Jr.'s house in the Hollywood Hills. Escaping to the warmer climes of the West Coast, the band sets up a makeshift studio in the pool house of the mansion they rent from Sammy Davis Jr. and begin work on their second album. The house featured a living room, kitchen, a massive master bedroom with a bathroom and walk-in closet. It also had an additional four bedrooms. On top of the huge house, the estate also featured a pool house, which was converted into the studio space, but also had a suite with a bedroom. And below the kitchen in the main house, Dominique was staying. Everyone stayed in the house. It felt like Big Pink in a lot of ways. Just a bit bigger and a little bit more luxurious. It was the clubhouse technique of making music. That you could go to a place and you're not on the clock. And you can do whatever you want to do. 
Um, there's nobody in a glass booth in there saying, well, what was that? Or there's none of that. To get it ready for recording, they taped up the chimney, sealed off the fireplace, and had Capitol Records send over carpenters to fix and box out the windows. Now, they also needed equipment to record in the non-traditional situation, and waited for over a month as Capitol got the gear together and shipped it to the house. And while the band was getting set up in Los Angeles, this is when they first met Van Morrison. Between the viaducts of your dream. Morrison had just started making his mark on the scene with his album Astral Weeks, and Robbie remembers their first encounter. One of my favorite musicians around this time was Van Morrison. Van liked music from Big Pink too, and he dropped by, say hello one afternoon. I dug him right off the bat. His abrupt, straight arrow Irish temperament tickled me. Morrison became a quick friend of the band and would later show up at various points later in their careers. And with the gear coming in slowly and the studio setup process taking longer than expected, it gave Robbie the opportunity to learn engineering. Always interested, John Simon helped him learn the different equipment and technology, and he remembers how useful it was. I had certain sounds in my mind for songs I was writing, and in some cases, it was easier just to do it myself than to try to describe it. And finally, the studio was set. Now the problem was, they were going to record the album in two months but now only had one month to record everything. John Simon later mused in Levon's biography, Richard Emanuel said one day, what we want is to get hold of some of them high school fat girl diet pills. So I called up a college drummer friend of mine, by then a neurosurgeon in San Francisco, who prescribed the whole pile. Now, with practically unlimited time, the band would start recording. Levon remembers how they approached it in those days. We never really had any rules about making records. In those days, you lived with a tape recorder, Strictly trial and error. Living so communally, like in the days of Big Pink, how passing ideas around, we were always experimenting. And an average day of recording might not start until 7 p.m. The beginning of the evening would be spent tuning and differentiating the instruments. The band didn't want anything to sound similar on any given track. And they spent time rehearsing the tracks that they were gonna work on that evening as well. Going over parts and lyrics until everything felt right. And because of the atmosphere of the recording process, and who sung what, or who played what, it just came from what felt right. It might be Richard on drums, or Rick taking the lead vocal, and they just work it out over and over and over again until it felt complete. The band would usually break for dinner, and eating a hearty, healthy meal, and then most times start recording after midnight. And through the months of March and April, the band cut nine songs total, and they didn't spend too much time interacting with the LA music scene, as they were focused on the goal making a complete record. And much like Big Pink, they had banished themselves to the house. And according to Levon's biography, when a writer from Look Magazine showed up near the end of the month, he told us the neighbors were whispering about the grouchy bearded mountaineers who had taken over Sammy Davis's house. Some kind of cult, maybe. Now getting into the songs, the opening song on the album is Across the Great Divide. Sung by Richard, who also came up with the chord progressions and temp changes, with the lyrics being written by Robbie Robertson. From the start of the album, the song invokes imagery. It's very evident that the many nights the band spent watching movies in the studio had a massive impact on their approach. 
The late 60s brought classics like Peter Fonda's Easy Rider and Michelangelo Antonioni's film Red Desert and even Blow Up all helped build the content and the imagery the band was going for. Lyrically, Across the Great Divide tells the story of a singer asking his wife Molly to put down a gun that she was waving at him. The singer then recalls his earlier struggles when all he wanted to do was go home, and that if Molly does not put down the gun, he'll have to leave that home. The band biographer Barney Hoskins stated, the song appears to be set in a one-horse town, common to Western movies, but that the Harvest Moon and Riverside described in lyrics place the song within the American South, like other songs from the album. Together with the setting and the story, the band had set up kind of the through line for the rest of the album with this first track. Critic Marcus Griel noted another aspect about the appropriateness of Across the Great Divide as the opening song on the album that uses America as a theme. He notes that the symbolism of the Great Divide being a place where two sides separate, but also meet and cross the Great Divide between men and women, but between the past and the present, between the country and the city, and between the North and the South. Musically, Across the Great Divide again features Richard's powerful voice to open the album. He also plays piano in a Fats Domino style and provides a baritone sax for the horn arrangement in the song. In his typical place, Rick plays the bass, but he also adds trombone. Garth plays the brass and the Lowry organ, and Levon adds his ever-steady drums. That's all paired with Robbie on his electric guitar and producer John Simon filling in their brass section with a tuba. Reg Mama Reg was the next song written by Robbie, later disputed by Lee Von Helm as a group effort, but it wasn't regarded as anything special at the time of recording. The goal for the recording process for the song was originally to record it in a straightforward manner, but after running through the song a number of times, it just didn't feel right, so they scrapped everything that they were doing. In a more improvised style, the band loosened up and switched around on instrumentation. Richard moved to drums with his loosey-goosey style, Levon took up the mandolin duties along with vocals, Rick brought in the fiddle for recording, and Robbie straddled the acoustic guitar, and Garth filled in on piano. And instead of the traditional rock and roll setup with the bass to fill out the back end, John Simon actually played the tuba for the bass portion of the song. Like mentioned earlier, the song wasn't a major focus for the group, and Robbie later stated in Barney Hoskins' book Across the Great Divide, it didn't have very much importance until we recorded it, but it showed something else we could do in a style that didn't exist. Lyrically, the song has a pretty consistent interpretation, that being sexual in nature. Steve Millward commented in different tracks, music and politics in 1970, that Rag Mama Rag is a gentle, satirical song about a hapless country bumpkin who can't control his girlfriend. Now here's what Levon thought about Rag Mama Rag after finishing it. I really thought that uh, Rag Mama Rag was going to be a radio song, though. I, you know, I didn't see it as number one with a bullet, but uh, but I thought that one had the elements that uh, that a song like Blue Suede Shoes had. You know, it, it swung good and it was danceable, and uh, it didn't take a whole lot of time. It was over that quick. Uh, but uh, I've been wrong before. Virgil 
Now, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down is perhaps one of the most well-known songs ever composed by the band. The song features the first-person narrative of Virgil Cain and details the economic and social disadvantages experienced by the protagonist, a poor white southerner during the last year of the American Civil War, when George Stoneman was raiding Southwest Virginia. Real Marcus's work, Mystery Train, he adds more context to what the song is about, stating it's less about the Civil War and more about the way each American carries a version of that event within himself. And Rob Bauman adds in the liner notes in the 2000 reissue of the song, Robbie stated that the music and the progression came from him in his head around the birth of his first child. When we were doing the band album and I was writing this song, um... My daughter Alexandra was just born, so she was a newborn baby. So when I was writing this, I had to be very quiet because it was like the, the baby sleeping, don't make any noise. So uh, um, I just, you know, I, I, I kind of got used to the idea of working in quietness. We're talking about all these subtleties and everything, and it was not just about wanting to play in subtleties, it was about having to play in subtleties. Levon being from the South made sense when it came to singing this song, but it's not just about that, it's about how he sung it. You can feel the character and the entire history through his delivery. Peter Viney later stated, I once played the song for a friend, with a good musical ear, but no knowledge of the band. His comment was, you can hear that drummer's really listening to the lyrics. In the context of time, the song has been criticized for historic liberties that it has taken, but that is beside the point. It works for the listener and gets the most important message across. The song opens up the South in a new way for a lot of viewers, a view that many Americans had never really thought about. And here's what Jonathan Taplin had to say about it. I remember being brought to tears by that song. It was so beautiful, and it was it was such a amazing point of view on the South and and what Levon and the people he had grown up with went through. And it was like you know one of those things where you have a, an epiphany where you really all of a sudden see a whole new point of view on something where. Where, you know, I had always had a kind of classic redneck stereotype in my head. And just in one four-minute piece, that all changed. Above all, it solidified the band, especially Levon, as one of the finest singers and drummers in modern music. The next song on the album is When You Awake. ballad written by Robbie and Richard. Now the lyrics for this one contain a story of a young boy who is receiving advice from Oli, who may be a friend or a relative. Oli is more experienced about the world than the main character and advises the boy to be careful in life as it can be difficult. And you can find as much in the lyrics, be careful where you step and watch what you eat. The boy later turns to his grandfather, but the grandfather echoes the exact same advice as Oli. Then the song spans several years and we come to the end when the boy, now much older, is reflecting on his childhood. Robbie later quoted in Barney Hoskins' book on the band, it's the story about somebody who is passing something on to you, 
and you pass it on to someone else. But it's something that you take to heart and carry with you for your whole life. Another interesting note about this song is in the last few lines. They're based on the traditional gospel song on the rock where Moses stood. And they even use altered lyrics. And I thought if I could do any good, I'd stand on the rock where Moses stood. Musically, the song is sung wonderfully by Rick Danko with his soaring tenor voice, with Richard on drums in a ragtime style, and Robbie plays what music critic Nick DiRizio deemed a Merle Travis-style picking. Overall, the song feels like a spiritual successor to Manuel's pen, We Can Talk, that was featured on the first album, with lyrics, as DiRizio later states, are more about feel than literalism, and more about emotion than interpretive detail. It seems to be a song, at least at first, about the joys of home. Right after that, we come upon Up on Cripple Creek. Sung from the perspective of a truck driver who goes to Lake Charles, Louisiana. He seems to stay with a local woman named Bessie, whom he knows. He also gambles and drinks and listens to music. And towards the end of the song, he is tired of everything and wants to go home to see Big Mama. Now, upon some deeper research, Big Mama could be two things. It could be a significant other or the CB radio code Big Mama, which refers to the dispatcher. However, remember, the song also lets us know that he's tempted to go see Bessie again. All in all, this song is an amalgamation of the roots of the band's sound, rock and roll, bluegrass, country, and the lyrical content about the American South. Robbie later stated on the song, we're not dealing with people at the top of the ladder. We're saying, what about that house out there in the middle of that field? What does that guy think? With that one light on upstairs and that truck parked out there. Just following the story of this person, and he drives these trucks across the whole country. He knows these characters that he drops in on, on his travels. Just following him with a camera is really what the song's about. But we can't escape talking about this song without talking about Garth, presenting his genius yet again. While most who listened thought it was the twang of the Jews harp that they heard throughout the song, it was rather a new invention. would stick a wah-wah pedal on uh, anything. So we tried on the clavinet. And there's a break in the music, and Garth did that jaw harp thing. And that was the hook that just pulled your ear right in, and by the time you listened to it, the drums would do the kickoff again, and it would roll back in and go through again. It's also really important to note that Garth's wah-wah clavinet playing was being done by him well before Stevie Wonder made it popular a few years later. And here's Robbie later giving insight into how Garth was effectively the lead player on the track. The fact that Garth has the clavinet and the organ are kind of like the lead instrument um, as far as instruments are concerned on this. The guitar doesn't come wailing up or anything. and The piano just does little licks here and there as far as sticking out. The thing that sticks out is this juice harp sounding clavinet thing. Um, just is kind of an odd, uh, odd construction of, of the song, but uh, you can hear how it, you know, it all adds up in its own way. Now, Cripple Creek features an amazing dual performance from Levon, playing an insanely soulful beat while delivering a fine vocal. The American drummer Max Weinberg was a massive fan of Levon's work and later said this on the track. 
Levon's beat is so soulful and right. The fact that he was singing while playing goes to show his true artistic achievement. Drummers have always loved the sound of Levon's drums, and here they are fat and deep, his snare splitting the music in half. It kind of felt better, and it made it more danceable. So when Cripple Creek come around, uh, we couldn't find a place to put it. Uh, if you go up on Cripple Creek, she sends me if I sprang a beak. That's gonna get old pretty quick. So up on Cripple Creek. So with the halftime feel, we were able to do that for Cripple Creek and for three or four more that that turned out the weight is another uh, good example back on Big Pink. Uh, we just, uh, there, was, there were no rules, so uh, it felt good and uh, we went with it. Now following Cripple Creek is Whispering Pines. One of the last songs recorded on the album, with the primary songwriter being Richard. In the typical fashion, with many Richard songs, Whispering Pines is a ballad. Richard had spent some time working on the melody and vocal lines, but worked with Robbie to finish the lyrics. Robbie later commented this on trying to work with Richard to write the song. Richard always had this very plaintive attitude in his voice, and sometimes in his sensitivity as a person. I tried to follow that, to go with it, and to find it musically. We both felt really good about this song. The lyrics also pay special attention to the pine trees. The pine is prevalent in the Woodstock area, covering large swaths of land, and additionally, there are tons of pines in abundance all across Canada. Along with Richard singing, he plays piano on the track. Joe Forno, a manager at one time of the band, commented years later that Richard's piano had one key that was out of tune when writing this song. And liking how it sounded, when they recorded the official version, the untuned key was there to match. Along with Richard, Robbie played acoustic guitar on the track. Levon provided drums and second vocal in the call and response section in the latter half of the song. And Garth occupied the Lowry organ, with John Simon adding some electric piano. All Music's Bill Janowitz later stated, at the beginning of his review of Whispering Pines, it's one of the band's most beautiful songs, if not the most gracious, and later says this interesting observation. Aside from the obvious lyrical reference, the song is reminiscent of some of Brian Wilson's moodier moments on Pet Sounds and the aborted Smile Sessions. Now, Whispering Pines is probably one of the saddest songs ever recorded by the band, and shows the roots of the excellent chemistry between Robbie and Richard and the writing department, Author George Kay said on the piece, Whispering Pines is one of the most haunting ballads in rock and roll. And almost flipping a switch, the next song is Jemima Surrender.
rousing rock tune primarily written by Levon with support from Robbie. Always flexible, the band had Levon on lead guitar and lead vocal on the track. The song expresses the singer's desire for a sexual relationship with the title character Jemima, and the song follows a similar thematic path as Rag Mama Rag. Filled with double entendres, the song is seen by many to be a satirical approach. With Levon and Robbie taking up electric guitar, they put a roaring rift on it that is energetic and catchy, ranking among their most memorable. Additionally, you have Richard Manuel on drums. In typical fashion, his drumming is loose and free, which fits the song. Garth picks up the piano and fills in every gap with his magnificent riffing. Hudson also added baritone sax and producer John Simon plays the tuba. I can't talk about Jemima without mentioning the controversy around it. Referred to by writer Barney Hoskins as occasionally rather Neanderthal in attitude towards women, led to criticism of the song by raising feminists. An American psychology professor, who also started Chicago Women's Liberation Rock Band and protests the lyrical content of this song, among others. She later stated that the song made her feel criminal to make the suffering of a woman so sexy. We'll organize our own rock band. Following up the roaring number of Jemima is Rocking Chair. Robbie is quoted in Jay Cox's 1970 cover story for Time magazine saying, Most people are knocked out by younger people. I'm knocked out by older people. Just look at their eyes, hear them talk. They're not joking. They've seen things you'll never see. This ultimately sums up their song Rocking Chair thematically. Again, we are introduced to Richard who's taking lead on one of the band's strongest characters. The story follows an old grumpy sea dog who finally comes home to spend the last few days on land with his friend and crony Ragtime Willie. Barney Hoskins wrote an interesting note about the theme and the lyrics and how they are uncommon for the time and place in rock music. It's rare enough to hear a rock song about older people that wasn't just made sentimentally and patronizing. This one was so tenderly sad it made you want to cry. Then here it switches. Richard's going up on top, and I'm I'm doing the tonic. And Rick's tying it together. Rick's in the middle tying it together, but Richard has got the ability to. Now Richard goes back and sings the song, the body of the song. The song's three-part harmony shows again the band's vocal strength. Rocking Chair is also a song that features more musical chairs for the group, with Levon playing his iconic mandolin and Garth coming in with the organ. This is paired with Robbie on acoustic guitar and Rick on bass. The band kept it deceptively simple. With Garth's accordion and Levon's mandolin, the song is reminiscent of an old string band, and it's a great example of how, without drums, you can still achieve a great sound. Pay special note to Rick's approach on bass and how it changes playing on the downbeat to help fill out the lower end. The bass is thumpy and wooden and sounds familiar to a tuba, a trick that the band uses on other tracks when Rick occupies different instruments. This drumless sound also harkens back to some of the early basement tape material. Overall, the song is something more similar to their first album and Hoskin agrees later stating, the song reestablished the sense of generational continuity that had been informed on music from Big Pink. While the recording was underway, Barry Feinstein came by to let the band know that actor and director Dennis Hopper was directing a new film called Easy Rider. 
This year, the judges of the Cannes Film Festival presented the award Best Film by a New Director to Easy Rider. It's the story of a man who went looking for America and couldn't find it anywhere. And I wanted to talk to the group about using their music. The film would star Hopper, Peter Fonda, and a new guy named Jack Nicholson. But the timelines weren't going to work as they were making their album and couldn't commit to creating new music for the film. But they still got to set up a private screening of the picture. Robbie watched the film and was surprised by the anti-Southern bend. That would have definitely made it a little bit harder to sell to the rest of the group. And while they didn't write music for the new film, Hopper was given permission to use The Weight, along with many other popular rock songs of the era. A new and interesting way of creating a soundtrack for the film. And this is just one of the many encounters that the band came head to head with while recording in Los Angeles. But nonetheless, it was time to keep on recording, and Look Out Cleveland was the next track. It's also perhaps one of the band's least represented songs. Surprisingly, the song isn't referring to Cleveland, Ohio, rather a suburb in Houston, Texas. This is compounded by the lyric, Look out Houston, there'll be thunder on the hill. For context, Cleveland, Texas was at one point a sleepy railroad hub and had a small population of 2,000 people. Today, it's a suburb of sprawling metro that is in Houston, one of the largest cities in the United States. Musically, the song also breaks tradition meaning the typical rural attitudes of music and the lyrics are forsaken for a more urban feel. It's also directly influenced by the blues. The song starts out with a strong hammering boogie-woogie piano riff by Richard Manuel and erratic chords from Robbie's electric guitar. Levon joins on drums with a stable, damp sound on the drums with no reverb. That's paired with Rick's melodic, bouncy bass riffing that is really the lead instrument on the track. Danko also provides the lead vocal in his high, clear voice Echoing a more rockabilly style, only helped further by Levon's harmonies in the chorus. The song is made a little bit more than your standard rock and roll blues tune with Garth's tremendous organ play. The song feels raw and is directly attributed to the live recording that was a function of the clubhouse setting. There's also no overdubbing to be mentioned. Lyrically, the song also may seem simple, but that deception is all part of the magic of what the band's lyrics are. The lyrics are actually biblical in nature, like other songs in their catalog. The sense of retribution from a powerful force is presented within the lyrics, talking about a storm coming and people in town running without any information, other than the reckoning is coming. While Cleveland doesn't get enough credit, critic Nick DiRizio says that he can pin the influence of this song on Elton John's tune, Take Me to the Pilot. Next up is Jawbone. Another wonderful collaboration between Richard and Robbie. Right off the bat, it should be stated that this song is completely nuts. It's complex and unique. Levon manages to keep time with the tricky 6-4 time signature. However, the song's tempo isn't consistent. 
it changes. It also features switching from 7-4 and 2-4 signatures, and somehow the band comes out on the other end in one piece. Levon later stated, Richard wasn't happy until he made me change rhythm patterns at least twice. It could always depend on a good workout when Richard was helping write the song. He might want to go from a shuffle to a march and vice versa. It was stuff that kept you on your toes all the time. That sort of thing was easy for Richard, so he didn't give a damn. He could play drums left-handed or right-handed. It didn't matter. And song co-writer Richard Manuel was featured in the lead vocal on this song as well, telling the story of thieves, gangsters, and hoodlums in the streets, to which Richard belts out in the best lyric from the band in my opinion, I'm a thief and I dig it. Upon a beef, I'm gonna rig it. I'm a thief and I dig it. Along with Richard's vocals, Helm follows from behind with a harmony and later stated in his biography that he and Richard recorded a portion of the vocal performance in his washroom. Now the first idea of the unfaithful servant came from when Robbie was on a trip to Hawaii, just prior to recording. It was later finished in the studio. And the lyrics tell the story of a servant who has offended his mistress of the house and is being banished. The singer, who isn't the servant, being sent away, sympathizes with the figure. Who the singer is is up to various interpretations. Some people think the singer is a friend who is sad to see their friend go. Some think it's the master of the household sending away a handmaid that he was caught in an affair with. My personal favorite. Like most songs on the album, this is a story focused on the South and features characters that are regretful. And musically, it's actually adventurous for the band. It follows a strange chord progression in a jazz style. Later, jazz critic Ralph J. Gleason stated that the song could have been written by jazz pianist Bill Evans. Servant is sung by Danko, who also occupies the bass. Paired with the lyrical content, it was a no-brainer to have Rick sing this tune in his bashful, lonesome voice. And Danko later admitted while recording the song, he attempted to do the vocals for over 40 takes. The Unfaithful Servant, uh, believe it or not, was uh, one of the few songs that I've uh, recorded in my life where it was done on the very first take. Yeah. That's the one that we, uh, you know, we recorded it and then I did it 30 more times or 40 more times. And John Simon, I think, came in and said, hey, listen to the, uh, listen to this, Rick. And I said, you know, you're right. And, uh, that was the first take. The song features an interesting relationship between Manuel's piano and Robertson's guitar. Nick DiRizio later stated on his website, Something Else Reviews, Richard's piano, rheumative, lures you even closer from the left, while Robbie's acoustic guitar, urgent, determined, and unsentimental, pulls from the other side. That essential entanglement of emotion is encircled by a series of mournful moans like a musty levee breeze. From Garth Hudson and the band's producer John Simon on soprano, sax, and tuba respectively. The song is remembered fondly by fans of the band and biographer Cliff Harris stated this on Servant. In the space of four minutes and 17 seconds, the song represents a story worthy of Faulkner or Hemingway. High praise indeed. Now, writer Peter Viney stated that if The Wait was the most important song on the first album, King Harvest was essentially its spiritual successor. I 
King Harvest is the last track on the album and it stands out. Not just because it's the last, but because as the notes in the band's first anthology series stated, the music is unusually complex, making use of odd verse patterns and tricky rhythmic suspensions, and modifying the natural sounds of the instruments for various precisely calculated effects. But because of the way the record sounds, none of this calls attention to itself. Another unique note that Peter Viney observes is that the chorus is somehow quieter than the verses. The total opposite of your typical chorus in a rock song. Here is Viney again on the chorus-verse relationship. The chorus is soothingly evocative. In contrast to the harsher voice of the narrator, the farmer, or the sharecropper, or whatever you want to call him, in the verse. Musically, Levon stands out on the track from behind the drum kit, with his restrained, touchy hits on the cymbals, paired with Garth's low, swirling organ. You also have Robbie providing one of his most memorable examples of guitar playing, and he later stated to writer Rob Bowman, This was a new way of dealing with the guitar for me. This very subtle playing, leaving out a lot of stuff and just waiting till the last second and playing that thing just in the nick of time. It was an approach to playing where it was so delicate. It's the opposite of the in-your-face guitar playing that I was used to. This was the kind of thing that was slippery. It was like, you have to hold your breath while you're playing these solos. You can't breathe or you'll throw yourself off. I feel emotionally completely different about playing the instrument. And with Robbie's guitar, you have Richard singing, also competing for that attention. Richard hesitates in his delivery of the sorrowful vocal. And again, if under some stress, lagging a bit behind the beat, it all adds to the anxiety of the farmer in the story. King Harvest was the perfect song to end this album. And it's certainly one of the best tracks to close an album in rock history. Now, the record wasn't recorded entirely in one place. After spending time in Los Angeles, the band went to New York to finish the record. They had recorded nine songs at Sammy Davis Jr.'s in Los Angeles and three in New York. However, before the completion of the album, they were due to play their shows in San Francisco for Bill Graham. It had been announced in the San Francisco Chronicle in February of 1969 that the band would be playing The Winterland April 17th, 18th, and 19th. The band was nervous. There was a lot of tension. A lot of people were expecting big things. And while the band were seasoned pros when it came to playing live, this was the first time that they played their own material live with the band. And of course, that is when everything went wrong. The weekend that they were playing was apparently going to be a massive earthquake in the Bay Area. Also, Robbie had gotten sick. He hadn't eaten in two days and was airsick on the plane to San Francisco. And by the time the group checked in at the Seal Rock Motel, he had a fever of 103 degrees. So um, by the time we, we got to play, um, or it was time to rehearse for the things up there. I, I couldn't even rehearse. I was just uh, too weak to, to go and do that. And then it was the, the night we were supposed to play, and it was like everybody was going crazy, and the stress of the whole thing wasn't helping any of it either. And it's a last-ditch effort. Uh, uh, Albert Grossman and, and Bill Graham decided to call in this hypnotist. Robbie was in bed and uh, he, uh, he put him in a trance and then he said, whenever you hear the word grow, these feelings will surge over you and you will feel strong. So he brought him out of the trance and everybody was kind of watching and Robbie said, God, I feel, I feel better. 
And um, so he got up and he got out of bed and he fell right on the floor. He just collapsed on the floor. So the guy, oh, he said, oh, I forgot. You've been sitting in bed for two days, your legs. So he put him back in a trance and he said, your legs will feel like strong iron springs. And uh, then he put him, took him out of the trance and Robbie got up and at this point, we were like two hours late already for the gig. With everything in disarray, Bill Graham wanted to cancel the Thursday show and add a Sunday show. Albert Grossman was against that. John Simon, who was also on the trip to supervise the music and sound, had called his neurosurgeon friend who had given them the prescription pills earlier to come and give Robbie a check-in. The surgeon said that Robbie had had the flu and the chills. With no hope of getting him in working shape, the band decided to bring in hypnotist Pierre Clement as a last resort. He immediately diagnosed Robbie with nervous exhaustion. On the evening of the first show, Robbie was still in bad shape. The two acts, the Ace of Cups and Sons of Chaplin, stretched their sets out to give the band a chance to stall. Then there was nothing. Silence. No band on stage. But everyone was there. People flew in from all over the place. There was press there too. Rolling Stone, Time, Look, The New York Times, all eagerly awaiting the band. Finally, at 12.30, several hours after the band was supposed to take the stage, they finally were in place. The hypnotist was sitting side stage just in case. Robbie nearly collapsed but leaned against the piano and played seven songs over the course of 35 minutes before he had to leave the stage, not being able to play any longer. The audience wasn't exactly pleased, nor should they have been. People had come in from across the country and across the globe to watch the band, and they only played 35 minutes. Nonetheless, the following night was better, Robbie felt better, and at least it was good enough to make it through the whole entire set. The band sounded a lot better too by now. To note, the classic band configuration was used here. As Levon notes, each member had to be in a specific place, and sight lines were important so they could all see each other playing. Levon's kit was on a riser, right next to Garth's organ, also on a riser. Richard's grand piano was stage left, Robbie stood between Garth and Levon, and Rick stood between Richard and Garth. This was the tried and true method that they had developed over the years. Levon later stated that the shows at the Winterland were the first time in years that they weren't booed when they played. The reviews for the band were great too. One review for the San Francisco Chronicle stated, They were together, like a team, like a family, like a band. Somehow four Canadians and an Arkansas country boy found it in themselves to express part of where all of us are now while expressing themselves in a language that can ignite explosive trains of thought inside your head. Following San Francisco, the band then played Fillmore East a few weeks later. The shows in New York were massive and the crowds were explosive. When Levon came out from behind the kit to sing and play mandolin on Don't You Tell Henry, he put his lips to the microphone and was electrocuted. In pain, he finished the night, but apparently it was the gear. It was new and it wasn't grounded properly. But even with that rough patch, the shows went well. After the show, Richard gave one of his most famous quotes to a journalist from the Boston Globe. The journalist asked, how did you get your start in music? And Richard responded, well, let's see. I started at nine and quit, then got back to it when I was 12. Then I became a party star. In fact, I became a party. Along with these highly publicized shows, an article came out in Life, further building the myth around the band. Life talked about how the band were hermits in the mountains crafting music. And you know what? They weren't wrong. They played a few shows and retreated back to the Catskills to make more music. That's the way they liked it. However, things were getting a little bit more complicated. Heroin was coming onto the scene, a big problem for the band, and especially because it was free. 
People wanted to hang out with the group, and it was a good social lubricant. It was also fun, at least at the beginning. And while finishing up the album in April of 1969 in New York, Levon met up with Libby Titus again. This time it wasn't all just flirtation. While Levon was still very much living the rock and roll style of life, he dedicated himself to Libby, who was living across from Grossman and was learning to sing with the help of Todd Rundgren, an up-and-coming engineer and producer. Spring led way to summer and the festival circuit was massive. The first gig was on July 22nd, 1969 at the Toronto Pop Festival with Chuck Berry, Steppenwolf, Blood, Sweat and Tears. A stellar lineup, but a bad show for the band. Apparently they had technical problems. Their amp sounded awful and the set was a mess. The press wasn't thrilled either, calling them too country and not as energetic as they once were in the Hawks. Shrugging their shoulders and moving on, the band was told of a massive festival that was set for Woodstock which at the time, Bob Dylan was supposed to headline. The band initially agreed to take part. It was just down the road and Bob was there. However, not long after Bob pulled out, he wasn't thrilled with the attention it would bring to Woodstock, which was already becoming a place for fans to come to seek him out. The band had already committed, however, but it wasn't long before the festival moved from Woodstock proper. First, it was moved to Ulster County, before being moved into Sullivan County in a small town of Bethel on Max Yasger's farm. 400,000 people showed up for that festival, and it was a disaster. No food, no water, heavy rain, leaving the entire grounds in a mess of mud and youth on brown acid. The Woodstock Festival, however, was legendary, featuring a lineup of The Who, The Grateful Dead, Sly Stone, Janis Joplin, and their friend Paul Butterfield, and also had the likes of Jimi Hendrix and Arlo Guthrie. The band had to be flowing in as the roads were a mess. There was no way they were going to get to the venue. They helicoptered out from the Stewart Airport and were brought in behind the stage where they stayed in motorhomes. Levon remembers walking around the grounds and seeing the stage. It was 30 foot with elevators in the back, immense scaffolding, and out and in front of it, muddy people on the hillside for miles. The band played on the Sunday. By that time, there was a national emergency. Clinics had been set up and people were pretty fried. It was also raining quite hard. The band played right after 10 years. The voice of Woodstock, Chipmunk, bellowed from the stage, the band's entrance, with a monstrous roar. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome with us the band. set into their first number, Chess Fever, before playing through Tears of Rage, We Can Talk, Don't You Tell Henry, Don't Do It, Ain't No More Kane, Long Black Veil, This Wheel's on Fire, I Shall Be Released, and of course, The Wait. Their set was topped with an encore of Loving You is Sweeter Than Ever. And that was it. After the set, they left. They piled into a station wagon that was being pulled through the mud by a bulldozer with a chain. It took the band several hours to make it the 50 miles back to Woodstock. In context, Woodstock was monumental. However, the band did not appear in any commercial product from the event. The film that was later released did not include them, nor any of the released music from the event. They were filmed, and apparently the footage was some of the best of the festival. However, Grossman, their manager, refused for it to be released.
Following Woodstock that summer, a British festival had popped up, Isle of Wight, and it was agreed upon that Bob Dylan would play. Bob wanted the band to play with him, and they all agreed as they loved playing with him and wanted to cross the pond to see some of their British friends. They had a bit of a live rehearsal together in July at the Mississippi River Rock Festival in Edwardsville, Missouri, and it went pretty well. The band played their regular set before being joined by Dylan unannounced. The crowd went mad. They hadn't seen him in a while. Dylan looked different. His image had changed. His hair was short. He wore brown shirt, pants, and boots. It was all part of his new aesthetic. He had just released his new country album, Nashville Skyline, and had appeared on Johnny Cash's television show. It is also interesting to note that Dylan hadn't played outdoors since the show at the Hollywood Bowl in 1965, so they played a real slow and laid-back set. A few weeks later, the band and Bob arrived in England in late August and rehearsed a set of 12 or so songs. They crossed the English Channel on a ferry to the Big Island, where the festival took place. The show hosted over 200,000 people who had camped out there for three days. The lineup was very similar to that of the lineup that played Woodstock, with The Who, Joe Cocker, and Richie Havens playing sets. Also, it had some of the top brass of the time. John Lennon, George Harrison, Ringo Starr, Eric Clapton, and Keith Richards all attended the event. By the time Dylan hit the stage, the press had deemed this the comeback show of the decade. Anticipation was an extremely high place. 20 years ago, scandalized people for the frequent nudity and drug taking. Top of the bill in 1969 was the very relaxed Bob Dylan. Would you like to state out your general views on the situation of drug taking among teenagers and young people these days? I don't have any of those views. I wish I did. I'd be glad to share them with you, but I... I think everyone should lead their own life, you know? The show started at just after 9 p.m. It was supposed to start earlier, but there were some problems that ensued. Dylan was dressed in his cream suit, channeling his best Hank Williams, and started his set with She Belongs to Me. The majority of the set was Nashville Skyline and John Wesley Harding hits, mixed with a few newer countrified versions of classics like Maggie's Farm and Like a Rolling Stone. Do an old-time country tune. Oh, country music goes down all right in the Isle of Wight. Ain't no more king on the prize. With a successful show under the belts, the band flew back to America. However, Robbie flew with Ringo and George back to London on their private jet. George had invited them to his house in Surrey to show him the new Beatles record, Abbey Road. Impressed with the sound, Robbie now showed George his new record. It's been well documented since that George loved the first two albums immensely and were some of his staples. With the band's festival summer circuit coming to an end, it was time to once again focus on the release of their self-titled album. After the recording was complete, it was time to mix and master. At first, they went to A&R Studios, since they were familiar with having done work there in the past. Tony May was the assigned mixing editor, and the band was pretty excited. He was known for working with some of the big groups of the era, and even mixed some of the Isley Brothers' work, including It's Your Thing. May was not overly pleased when he heard what he was working with. He was not impressed with the engineering John Simon had done with the tracks, and complained about having to fix a lot of their mistakes. He also wasn't very interested in following the ethos of the band, and what they had constructed. Every time the band questioned why he had mixed something a certain way, he would lash out, and that pissed the group off. They were going for a specific sound, and they were looking to collaborate with somebody. 
Not impressed with his two mixes, the band left Tony May and went back to Hit Factory, where they had just recorded, to work with Joe Zagarino, who the band felt knew a lot better what they were aiming for. Along with Zagarino, the band set up their own monitors and essentially mixed the album themselves. More on feeling, and they went by how everything sounded together. Now with the mixing complete, the next step was mastering, which is the fine tuning process, where they cut the master disc from, which all the pressings are made, as a template of sorts almost. The band used the well-regarded mastering engineer Bob Ludwig at Sterling Sound, another roadblock. Bob was worried. The mix was so dense and heavy, and he wasn't sure if he could make it work. Worried, the band waited. A few days later though, Ludwig called and said he was mistaken. The sonic quality of the record was amazing and the depth was unique. He was able to master the record and also commented on the fact that it was one of the best he had ever heard. Levon later mused in his biography that their sophomore effort was a complicated record. Much like their first record, it was required a second listen to fully absorb, meaning the range of the record was vast. It didn't follow a formula. There were folk songs like Rock and Chair and rockers like Lookout Cleveland were songs that discussed topics that weren't deemed popular or cool. Look Out When You Awake, which is primarily about an old person. The working title for the record was Harvest, and that made sense. The whole aura of fall and farmers and harvest was present on the record, and Levon stated on the title, we were reaping this music from the seeds that had been planted many years before we'd even been born. And while Harvest was a popular choice, the title America was also thrown around because in a lot of ways, the songs represented America in theme, but also in music. The new album shipped September 22nd, 1969 as simply The Band. It eventually reached number nine on the charts and Capitol Records had chosen Up on Cripple Creek as the single that reached 25, the band's only top 30 single. In the UK, EMI, Capitol's parent company, released Rag Mama Rag as the single. Much like the reviews from Music from Big Pink, their follow-up opened to exceptional reviews. The New York Times critic Susan Linden stated that the band is a masterful record. The arrangements of the songs are tight and economical. The sound is complex and richly textured. And the band surely possesses one of the most impressive vocal compliments in all of rock and roll. And John Carroll's review in the Rolling Stone said, Levon Helm is one of the only drummers that can make you cry. By the fall of 1969, Up on Cripple Creek had some heavy radio play and Ed Sullivan had called up to see if they were willing to play his Sunday evening variety show. Now this wasn't typical for the band as they had shunned all this type of media presence, but they said yes without a second thought. It was Ed Sullivan, a staple of television during the era. It would also mean that the whole country would be watching. Thank you everybody for listening to the Band of History. This is probably one of our most detailed episodes yet and we put a lot of time into it and a lot of effort and we hope you enjoy it. Uh, this period of the band obviously is well documented and a lot of people's favorites so it was a real pleasure digging through interviews and books and everything else to really put all of this together in a concise format and uh, we'll be taking a look next week at kind of some of the aftermath of this and all the great things that it did for the band before we go into their next album. So we really hope you are enjoying that. I want to thank our donors for helping making this show possible. Kenneth Rockburn and George Francie, thank you for your monthly support. I also want to give a huge extended thank you to Jim Seitz who had generously this week donated $200. Uh, huge for us and that support means a lot. 
I also want to thank Alexandra Geyer who donated $20 as well. Thank you so much. It really, really means a lot for helping making this show even possible. Remember, you can also rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It helps the podcast in more ways than one. Also, we've curated a playlist for listeners of the show, and you can find it in the description of this episode and on Spotify. It's got some great uh, plays so far from various different listeners, and we really hope you like it. Always a reminder is to check us out on our social media. We put a lot of time into providing great content and historical context on some unique photos of the band. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Band Podcast. Thank you again for listening to the episode. We really hope you enjoy it, and we'll see you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.